Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, if we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Robbie Itterberg. I'm one of the pastors, and as we move into our message this morning, I'm wondering, have you ever had your fingerprints taken? No, I'm not suggesting that you were involved in criminal activity. That There's lots of non-criminal reasons you may have had your fingerprints taken. Your job may require a certain level of security clearances. You might have gone through the adoption process or Like me, I had my fingerprints taken as a part of a background check process in Pennsylvania so that I could work with children and youth. And we we take fingerprints because they are some of our unique identifiers, aren't they? That no two sets of fingerprints are alike. We also know from watching any crime drama over the last 60 years what a powerful tool, crime-solving tool, fingerprints are, aren't they? But it is really complicated and involved process to actually identify the fingerprints found at a crime scene and link them to a particular suspect. There's all sorts of aspects of the fingerprints you have to analyze from the ridges, which are actually the black lines, to the core, which is that center little loop part, to things called deltas, and then there's arches and loops and whirls and bifurcations and ridge, uh, what I, ridge endings, and it keeps going. The, and that's just some of what has to be analyzed. And so the challenge is analyzing them deeply enough to be able to identify the owner of the fingerprints. Well, recently, our session, that's the group of currently serving elders plus the two pastors, concluded a significant season of discernment, of prayer, and analysis to discern God's fingerprint on us, on this part of his body that is PCTR, his unique identifiers that he's put on us, because just like No two humans are alike, no two fingerprints are alike, no two churches are exactly alike. That each church reflects God uniquely in the world. And today we're starting a series that we're calling God's Fingerprint, Our Values. Where each week in this series, we're going to walk through one of the values that has been discerned. It's been discerned. It hasn't been constructed or created as if, you know, some sort of lofty ideal, instead discerned from what God has uniquely pressed into us today, but also throughout our history. And we want to articulate these values and understand them so that we can live more fully into them. Because how many, how many of us, we won't make you show your hands, but how many of us have values for our own lives, but fail to live up to those values at every moment? Right? I won't look if you put your hand up, right? <laughs> In the same way, we recognize that we're going to name, articulate these values, but that we as a church are also a work in progress. And that our desire is to live more fully into these values that God has pressed on us. But we want to name them and understand them so that we can be intentional about living into those values with purpose to the best of our ability. 
And so the first value we're going to look at today is gospel-centered. And as we read from Colossians chapter 1, I want to invite you to, to think as we're reading, what is Paul saying is the gospel? What is the good news? And so we're going to read from Colossians 1, and if you want, you can follow along on the screen. Let's listen for God's word speaking to us this morning. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move among us that you would open our ears, our minds, our hearts to hear, to understand, and to receive and to respond to your word for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So did you hear it? At the heart of the good news, the gospel is the theme of alienation and reconciliation. Have you ever felt like you were on the outside looking in? Like maybe it was your experience in middle school and you were at one lunch table all by yourself and then there was a whole group of kids at the other table laughing and playing and you just wanted so desperately to be a part of it. Or maybe you're walking along and you hear a party and you press your face up against the window and you realize it's a wedding reception and it just looks like such a good time. You just long to be inside and to be a part of it. Like that's what alienation is about. That we long to be on the inside, but we know we're on the outside. Specifically, alienation has to do with being on the outside of a relationship that we were meant to be inside of. It's one thing to be looking through the window at a wedding reception and longing to be a part of it. It's another thing to be looking through the window of your wedding reception and going, wait a second, I'm supposed to be in there. That's my spouse, right? That's where alienation really starts to set in. One dictionary defined it as being shut out from fellowship and intimacy, shut out from that relationship we were made for. And this is the reality of what sin has done to us and to our relationship with God. It's actually what our first reading was about from Genesis. Back in the beginning, when God created Adam and he placed them into the Garden of Eden and things were amazing. 
There was plenty to eat. The temperature was apparently just right because they didn't need a jacket, if you know what I'm saying. And God would come into the garden regularly. He would walk with them. He would talk with them. He would interact with them. They experienced an intimacy and a fellowship with God. It was a place of security. It was a place of confidence, of joy, of happiness, of wholeness, of delight, of meaning. And then sin enters. They eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and suddenly, all at once, alienation. Right? They realized that they were naked. And suddenly they're afraid of the God who has been with them so many times before. They feel shut out from the relationship and intimacy they once had, feeling the need to cover over themselves, to hide in their shame and their regret. No longer feeling that they have access to this relationship because they are aware of their sinfulness. You've probably had that experience. You may have had that experience growing up when you knew what you did was wrong. And where was the last place you wanted to be? Right there with mom and dad, isn't it? As a matter of fact, sometimes that was the punishment. Yeah, come sit here right next to me. Right? That though physically present, there was clearly a distance between you, an alienation being experienced. And this is what had happened as sin entered the relationship that with Adam and Eve and God. And it was so significant and so concerning that God plucks Adam and Eve out of the garden, placing them outside of the garden and behind them, putting a cherubim and a flaming sword. This was the lightsaber referred to earlier. So they couldn't get back into the garden. And God does this because there was already alienation in their relationship. And he didn't want them to eat from the tree of eternal life so that it would stay that way forever, so they'd be alienated for an eternity. So instead, by his grace, he banishes them from the garden so that his grand plan of reconciliation and restoration could unfold throughout history. And so their physical alienation outside of the garden mirrors their relational alienation that was already present with God. And so now we, the heirs of that sinful nature, find ourselves also on the outside looking in for what they once had in the garden, that intimacy, that love, that security, that joy, that hopefulness, that wholeness, that peace that we were made to have. And see, this is the reality of what sin has worked in us, this alienation. But Paul also says it's more than just alienation. He says it goes further, that we're actually, he says, enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. See, our sin has so clouded our thinking, and our thinking leads to acts of rebellion and even animosity or hostility towards God. Have you ever thought of yourself as an enemy of God? Seeing maybe in yourself where you're still acting in ways that are hostile to him? In this passage, Paul used four powerful prepositions in his description of the Son of God, of Jesus. Particularly in relation to creation. He says that everything was created by him, through him, for him, and in him all things are held together. 
In other words, all things have been created by Jesus. Everything in heaven and on earth, seen and unseen powers, principles, authorities, even you were made by Jesus. And through him you were made. He is the word of God. And the word of God is the action of God. In the beginning, he said, let there be light and light came to be. The word was the action inseparable from one another. The word is the creative power of God. You were created through Jesus, created for him. Everything that exists was made for his enjoyment, his delight, his pleasure, his glory, and his honor. And in him, all things are held together. Jesus is holding your life together right this moment. That's why you don't just simply fall apart. Paul is demonstrating clearly that Jesus is supreme over all of creation, including you and me. We were made for him to delight him, to honor him. And then when we look at our lives, if that's really what we're made for, then maybe we are enemies of God. That in our sin, our fear, our alienation, I mean, if we're really honest about how much of your life, how much of my life is really about God? Every moment, thought, decision, action, desire, dream, does it reflect that I am made by him, through him, for him, and held together in him? I think we're honest about it. Much of our lives don't reflect that at all. It's not about him. It's about me. And and we're trained early to adopt this mindset. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do with your life? What do you hope for? What do you like? It's a mindset that we've built in. It's all focused on me, 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 me. And I'm not warming up for a solo. It's all about us. We're steeped in this mindset that this mindset is at war with God. Because he made you for himself to be the object of his pleasure and love to honor him. And yet we find ourselves on the outside looking in, wanting what they had in the garden, but in reality wanting it not on his terms, but on our own terms and in our own way. And that's really where the hostility heats up. Where, God, I want what you've got. I want the joy and the security and the meaning. I want what they had in the garden, but I want it on my terms, my way, my timing. And just like Adam and Eve, we can convince ourselves that somehow God is holding out. Maybe we don't say that out loud, but our behavior seems to indicate it. See, because they believed the lie the serpent was telling. The serpent said, oh, God's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat that fruit, you will be like God. And so buying into that lie, they justify to themselves. Eve says, hey, man, that fruit looks delicious. I really want it. Oh, and it's good for wisdom. Oh, okay. As long as it's good for wisdom, then I'll eat it. And so she convinced herself. She justified her sin And we can do the same thing, justifying our choices, justifying our behaviors that have no reference point to God, really. It's simply what I want, when I want it, and it makes me happy in the moment. And suddenly ending up at war with God and his purposes because I've made life about establishing my own purposes. But see, that's not the only way we can end up hostile to God. We can also end up hostile to God 
by going through the motions of the religious life and moral living, but doing it without any delight, any joy, any glory, any connection and intimacy with Jesus. Leslie Flynn references a story of two sisters. And these two sisters had had such a falling out and their bitterness had grown so deep that they stopped talking to each other altogether. But for a variety of reasons, they couldn't or wouldn't separate from one another. They still lived together and even shared a bedroom. And in this bedroom, there were two, roo- two beds, but right down the middle of the room, they had drawn a chalk line, each having their own side on one end of the room, even splitting the fireplace in half and on the other end, splitting the doorway in half so that they could go about their everyday living, coming in and out of the bedroom, but never talking, never interacting, holding on to their bitterness and their hostility. But every night, as they would lie on their bed, falling to sleep, they could hear the other breathing. So close, and yet holding on to such hostility. And I believe that there are many people in churches, in close proximity to God, and yet holding on to hostility, doing the things you're supposed to do to be a good person, but with no joy, no delight, no fellowship, no intimacy, still alienated and enemies and hostile to God. And Paul says, left to ourselves, that we're going to be enemies of God, hostile, saying, forget you, I'm going to do it my way, or simply going through the motions with a deep-seated self-righteousness and bitterness, but no joy. But he also says to the church in Colossae and to us that though you were once alienated and, and enemies of God, in Jesus you are reconciled to God. There's peace with God. There's a ceasefire. The hostility can be put to bay. There's a restoration of intimacy, of the things longed for from the garden. This is what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 15 when he tells the story of the prodigal sons. And particularly, he tells the story with the younger son demands from his father half of the inheritance, telling dad, basically, I wish you're dead. And for some reason, father gives him the money. And he leaves town and he squanders all of it on wild living, doing what he wanted, when he wanted, because it made him happy. But when it all ran out and he was shamed by his behavior, he went back home, humiliated with his tail between his legs to plead mercy for his father. But as his father sees him in the distance, he goes running down the drive throws his arms around his son, embracing him, kissing him, putting a robe on him, a ring on his finger, throwing a huge party to celebrate reconciliation, saying to, basically to the son, you didn't need to go away. You always had me. You always had what you longed for right here. But I'm so glad to have you back and you can have it all again. See, that's the picture of reconciliation for us. And Paul tells us how it happens. It happens only through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Only through his physical body killed. Because in that, 
In Jesus' death on the cross, in that moment, he is taking on all of the hostility, the animosity, and the enmity that we have for God, and all of God's just and appropriate anger for our rebellion, our disobedience, and our rejection. That Jesus took on himself the violence of our war with God so that we could be restored and reconciled. But why did he do it? See, in this passage, there's a number of different times that we're told that God was pleased. We were told that he was pleased to make all things. Do you know that God was pleased to make you? He didn't have to, but he wanted to. We're told that he was pleased not just to create, but to also enter into creation. That it says, Paul said that it pleased God to have all the fullness of God dwell in Jesus. In other words, in Jesus, there is the 100% fullness of God united with the 100% fullness of a human spirit. And so in Jesus is the reconciliation of God and humanity. The reunion is in him and through him. But it also in verse 20 said it pleased him to reconcile us to God through his bloodshed. Just don't pass over that so quickly. I I really have to ponder that reality because I'm not sure I always really believe that. That I really believe that though Jesus didn't want to die, though he knew the brutality of taking on the violence of the cross, the hostility of being an enemy with the Father, Though he didn't want to die that way, it pleased him to reconcile me to the Father. It pleased him to reconcile you with God. See, I think sometimes we think God has to take us back. Like he takes us back reluctantly or compulsively, like somehow God's codependent and he needs us when we turn back to him. But when we treat God that way, when we treat him like, oh yeah, he, of course he's loving. Of course he'll take us back. We've cheapened what love really is. Because here's the reality. That to be reconciled with God required Jesus to take on the brutality of the hostility and the enmity and the violence of the relationship. That's what love really looked like. That's what God's love is really all about. And if Jesus hadn't done it, there was no reconciliation. The garden was shut. The flaming sword was there. The only way back was through the violence of it. The violence of the cross. And so this, when we say gospel-centered, this is the gospel. That left to ourselves, we are alienated from God. Left on the outside, looking in. Enemies of God in our mind and in our behavior. And at the same time, we are loved so much that Jesus took on the hostility, the violence, and the enmity so that we could be reconciled with God. Presented to God as holy in his sight. Without blemish, without accusation, without hostility. Because it pleases God. Not because we've somehow stopped being enemies with him or figured out a way to earn his good graces or broke through that glass window. But through Jesus, we are no longer enemies with God because when we come to God through Jesus, we're laying down our arms. We are surrendering all that we've held on to, surrendering our bitterness, surrendering our hostility, surrendering our autonomy, surrendering our independence, and instead receiving 
the gift of reconciliation through Jesus. And so when we say we're gospel-centered, what we're saying is that we're going to recognize the reality of sin. That we're going to call sin, sin. That we're not going to pretend that somehow we are perfect, but instead acknowledge that we continue to justify behaviors and thinking that put us at odds with God. And at the same time, that what Jesus has done for us is sufficient. There is nothing else for us to do to remove the hostility and the alienation. But instead, that all of our sin, past, present, and future, all of our hostility from it has been placed on Jesus, and there's nothing more for you to do. And so we can acknowledge the reality of our sin and our enmity, and we can acknowledge what Jesus has done for us and how loved we really are. To say gospel-centered is to say that our only hope is in this gospel for life and for death. And so like Paul encouraged the church in Colossae to hold on to that truth firmly, there's lots of other messages in the world that are trying to push us off of this gospel that are trying to push us away from the relationship with God, trying to tell us that God's ways are old-fashioned, that they are outdated, that they are controlling, but instead we are saying, no, God's way is what's best for us, and we're holding on our only hope to what is what Jesus has done for us. And to say gospel-centered is to say that every aspect of our life, from the center out, is to be permeated with the reality of the gospel, that it, sh- it shifts the way we see ourselves, that we see ourselves and it demands from us an incredible amount of humility. Because when I recognize the gospel, I recognize that I am no better than any sinner that has ever walked the face of the earth because I have been an enemy of God, hostile to him. And what I deserve is what Jesus took for me, which is exactly what everyone else deserves. And so I am humbled by that reality, but at the same time, the gospel lifts us up and exalts us to a place of honor, of privilege, of relationship and intimacy with God. And so we can have a security unlike any other, and from that place of security, a boldness. We are both humbled and we are emboldened by the gospel. It also changes the way we see one another. Well, we see one another not as a burden, but we recognize that Jesus came to carry our burdens. And so we too look around and figure out how we can carry one another's burdens, loving one another as Jesus has loved us. The gospel changes the way we see those who don't know Jesus, who are not believers, where we don't just see them as the people who are making things go to that place in the handbasket and just making everything terrible but we see them as a people alienated from God and enemies with them in their minds. And apart from Jesus, they will remain alienated for eternity. And there is a world full of people alienated from their creator. And we are the people, followers of Jesus, called to offer them reconciliation through Jesus Christ. See, the gospel permeates everything. It is our motivation. It is our power. It is our hope. It's all-encompassing because Jesus is all-encompassing. Everything of our lives flow out of the gospel. And if that is not the case for you this morning, then I invite you to hear the invitation to stop standing on the outside, looking in, to stop holding on to your hostility towards God and to your autonomy and way of living and instead surrender. And to receive his love for you 
his reconciliation, maybe it's for the first time, or receive it again anew this morning and let the gospel fill us and captivate us. Let's pray. If you need to pray this prayer, I invite you to, to pray it in your heart and your mind after me. And you can pray. God, I acknowledge that I have been alienated from you and I have been an enemy of yours, wanting life on my own terms in my own way, going through the motions, but no enjoyment and delight in you. Lord, I am tired of being on the outside looking in, fighting against you. And in this moment, I surrender. I give to you my life as much as I am able. And I receive the gift of reconciliation that has been earned by Jesus Christ, my hope and my Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.